0: Hello, and welcome to the Living Lands Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Reber. I'm very excited to bring you along this new journey. The Living Lands Podcast is a science podcast focused on the environment and the relationship between humans and nature. We will have discussions with professionals in the field across many disciplines, and we will cover as many topics as we can. Some of this content might be quite technical or advanced to some without a background in biology, but my goal is to introduce and break down the high-level things so that any listener can understand and apply what we learn in their own life. If you want to learn, you are in the right place. Today, we talk with Justin Thomas. Justin is the science director for Nature Site and the director of the Institute of Botanical Training. He holds a master's degree in botany from Miami University, a bachelor's degree in biology from University of Missouri, and has over 25 years of professional experience. He also teaches classes at Missouri S&T and is the co-author of the Ecological Checklist of the Missouri Flora. He is a leading authority on the genus Dicanthelium, which is rosette grasses, the second largest genus of vascular plants in eastern North America. Thanks for coming on, Justin. I really appreciate your time and and talking with me.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here.
0: The really interesting thing, and the main reason why I'm glad to have you on today is because you were a part of uh, writing or contributing to an important research paper that actually got us connected a few months ago because I was reading it and very fascinated about it. Um, And I mentioned it in your bio, and that is the checklist of the Missouri flora. You contributed to this paper, and I just kind of wanted to have you introduce that paper, and how did you get in on this paper, and how did that all pan out?
1: Yeah, the the ecological checklist of Missouri flora is... It it came out of a lot of things, Um, you know, I started doing botany in the late 90s, back in the 1900s, and there was really a period in, in, you know, botanical taxonomic history where um, there were not a lot of field folks anymore, and there was sort of this void in field people, and I worked for the Nature Conservancy, my, one of my first uh, field jobs doing field botany, vegetation sampling. And my boss was Doug Ladd, who was the, the science director for, for the Nature Conservancy at the time. And Doug was an old school Bob Mullenbrock uh, botanist, and really drove in field concepts. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me as a young professional who was into plants to see an applied world for it. I'd I'd been at university, and and, and botany was was really kind of a, was an academic endeavor, so it seemed, and it really wasn't my cup of tea so much, but here was this field applicability to learning plants and to knowing plants. And over the years, working with Doug and then doing my own ecological sort of stuff, you start realizing that, that sometimes, at least back then, that academic perspective of botany was a very there weren't a lot of names that you could use because a lot of plants had been lumped. Those plants that we could see in the field were ecologically distinct. And so like the flora of Missouri was sort of a smaller flora than what we experienced in Missouri in the field. So it was it was constraining. And so over the years, you know Doug had already established the floristic quality assessment, C values and things for Missouri in the early nineties. Um but by the, the late, you know, the, the, the early 2000s, 2010s, we started talking about, let's make the names available. We have C values for plants, but we don't have enough plants. We don't have enough ecological entities that we want to give names for because the names have been lumped. Um, let's put out a checklist, let's revise the C values, which I imagine we'll talk about in a moment. So it, it really came out of, out of the academic realm and sort of the the floristic resources not fulfilling what we needed to apply in the field, not matching the concepts we saw um, and and ultimately needing a, a a more diverse toolbox you know for instead of just uh instead of oh, what's a good example instead of oh. Instead of 15 asters, we needed 25 asters. Mm. So we, we revised new names, gave new C values, and, and we're able to use them better that way.
0: So the checklist um, is an expansion or an improvement upon something that was built back in the 90s, correct? Yep. And yeah. so go into that a little bit. What is the foundation of this piece? Um, you know, C values, <clears throat> native plants, these are all important incredibly important topics. Uh, And I want to make sure that our audience understands each one and why it all ties together. And then, you know, leading into that checklist and the improvement that was made in the 2015, I believe it was published.
1: Yeah, the so the, the the original source for for what ultimately became C values was in the Chicago region. um, The first so the, the the C values themselves are numerical values between zero and ten that we assign to native plants based on their fidelity to intact sort of uh, ecological complexes, and that it first started as in the Chicago region, the Kane County, Illinois flora, or this little wildflower book this guy put together, he would give a ranking to the likelihood that you'd actually see those plants. Um, it, it was kind of a rarity thing. So if it was like, it was like a downy gentian that most people in that area aren't going to see, or if you did see it, it would be really significant. It would have a high number, whereas, oh, hairy aster, cypertia pylosum would be a really low number because it would be everywhere. So it really had a rarity element to it. And in the in the late '70s, this guy named Jerry Wilhelm, who was who was uh, who wrote ultimately wound up writing the floor of the Chicago region. He worked for the Army Corps of Engineers that needed somewhere to put uh, the, the dredgings from rivers in the Chicago region. They needed somewhere to dump the dredge, the, the, the sand and sediment and pollutants. Um, and so he had to go find these wild places and vacant lots to put things. And for some reason or another, you know, it, was, it was EPA was getting going and there were, there were environmental questions. So they didn't wanna just dump anywhere. So they hired some botanists in the region to find places to, to put things. And when he was out with these botanists, they would say, yeah, you can put spill here, or you can put spill there. But every now and then they'd stop into a place that was just like a gorgeous prairie remnant. And they would say, oh, please do not dump spill here. This, still ha- this is still alive. This still has ecological system. And Jerry, who was an engineer at the time, was intrigued by that, like, well, what were they seeing? What were they noting? And how could we better numerically represent that? And Jerry wound up working with, with Swink, uh, Floyd Swink, and several of the, the botanists in the Chicago region, and like I said, ultimately wrote the flora of, of Chicago. But that plus the Kane County thing, Jerry got this idea, like, well, we could assign a value to every native plant from zero to 10 the low numbers being scab plants, disturbophiles, nitrophiles, things that you would find just growing um, in really degraded systems. And then the higher numbers, the C values, six, sevens, eights, nines, tens, for species that you only find in systems that are still close to their their original ecological integrity. Complex, highly evolved, highly highly intact communities, species that depend on other species for interactions that depend on soil mycorrhizae and things like that. We'll have these higher C numbers. They're, they're indicators of, of functional, stable systems. Low C values are, are scab plants. Um, plants that don't have any connectivity, they're just annuals, things that grow, flash in the pan, sort of nitrophiles. Those numbers, so, so Doug Ladd wound up becoming friends with Jerry Wilhelm. They were, they were in the Molenbrack lot and El Leli together and Doug brought that to Missouri numbers in the 1990s 93 was the first publication and that was just a, a checklist and then some rough numbers and then you know by 2015 we re, we re, we revised those and the, the concepts changed a little bit over that period of time but a lot of the C values changed because you start realizing well that's not really a 6 it, it's hard to untangle rarity from the C value itself. Cause it's not really a measure of rarity, just rarity sometimes coincides, but there are there are annuals that are really common that have high C values. And there are long lived perennials that are kind of rare that have really low C values. There's, there's It's not a rarity measure, but it is a measure of a of, of system integrity and system potential.
0: So before I, w- I definitely want to get to talk to you about kind of the methodology behind C values and how you actually find that number and those kinds of things. But before we get to that in wildlife biology, specifically like a lot of mammals or or birds, there are indicator species. That's like, if you find a quail because it's such a specialist species, you know, that quail is a part of a high quality ecological system because it can't survive in degraded grasslands the same way that, turkeys could for example and so the way what i'm kind of understanding from your description is there are plants that are kind of in the same realm where if you find this plant chances are you are looking at a healthy ecological system or one that um is biodiverse or or something like that right
1: yeah absolutely and it, and it's more <clears throat> with the the beauty of of plants and having the C values for for plants in a, in a region as opposed to animals is that, that plants are the primary producers. So any energy that equals any energy that enters an ecological system. So you've got a prairie, all the energy that feeds the birds, the the insects, the microbia, all that energy that comes in. That's what drives systems. All of that energy comes from plants. Converting light energy into chemical energy, and that energy then fu- then then determines all the energy in a system. And so, literally, each species of plants, in combination at a site, determine the ecological potential of that site. It's why we have pollinator gardens and try to diversify. It's why diversity is an important feature of, of conservation. Um, it has to start at a plant level. So so. Birds are often indicators of habitat quality and condition, but not to the, de- to the degree that, that plants are, because plants are literally the first expression. They're the primary produ- productivity, the primary producers within living systems from which you know, it's, a, it's a trickle-down dynamic through which any, other, any living system, basically, if you want X number of plants or, or X number of birds, X number of insects, And these types of birds or insects, the first thing you got to start with is what types of plants you can put together. And then those insects and those birds are literally an emergent property. They manifest from the energy in those systems.
0: Right. So what everybody learns in, you know, first grade science class about food webs and everything like that, it's more of like a trickle up where the plants being the most numerous at the bottom actually determine the quality of of the next layer. And then because of that, that layer then contributes to the layer after that.
1: Yeah, I, I get annoyed by the, the the classic, like everybody grabs the rope, and they stretch out this sort of web of life sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's good for kids. And it's a good intro, but but it really is webs within webs within webs. And, and yeah, like like you're saying that that inner web, the sort of center from which most life radiates, it starts with plants, or at least photosynthetic. Uh, in, in the oceans, it's, it's, it's phytoplankton. And that's where all the energy and in, in ocean systems come from. So you gotta, have, you gotta have an energy source connected to the sun.
0: So most people, the, the uh, most significant environmental connection that they'll have in their life, um, just depending on where they grow up and, um, and where they live is, you know, the front yard or the backyard or, um, the park up the street. And we found, I think, a lot of these places aren't that diverse or they're missing something from, you know, these ecological systems that we're talking about. Could you dive into that a little bit? Like what, you know, what systems are they missing? Uh, not the people, but these yards or, or parks. Um, and why is that significant?
1: Yeah. It, it takes a bit of imagination and, and, I think the average person well I know the average person doesn't really understand the complexities to which evolution and ecological dynamics do manifest. so, so I think to, to, to get at that you kind of got to dial back and look at at what is what what are natural systems capable of And so when you go to like a, an intact old growth, system. Picture North America, pre-Euro America and Apocalypse. Um, it, it's a landscape that is old. The organisms, whether they're trees and forest woodland systems or whether they're grasses and grassland systems, they've been established and in that spot for centuries, if not millennia. And over that time, there's relative stability. Now there's fire, there's tornadoes. Life is, is Prone to any types of, of shocks and disturbances, of course, but overall, that landscape is what it is and, and is not changing by much. And th- this allows organisms, mainly plants at first, to evolve into very specific niches. And, and, and it allows a, a, a manifestation, a natural progression that, that systems become very complex. Say a couple of drought years come and, and Big Blue Stem loses its grip. And something like little blue stem gets a little foothold. Well, now there's a a place that used to be mostly big blue stem is now big blue and little blue stem. And then there's a wet period and say some uh, switchgrass, which likes it a little wetter, comes in. Now you've got three species all coexisting. Even though it dries out a little bit, the switchgrass is still there and it's not going anywhere. So amplifying this over, over millennia, since the glaciers retreated, you end up with, with systems that are that have very complex soils in relation to this, soils that are like a fine aged cheese or aged wine. You've got this amazing complexity of interrelated organisms that have evolved not only as species, but within regional, you, you get these regional adaptations at levels we can't even imagine. That manifests as wildlife, it manifests as insects, it manifests as as flowers and it, it just really becomes, we, we, in, in what remnants we have of this, we can see just how magical, how dynamic, and how beautiful these living systems are. And when you start using energy at that scale, basically all the energy that's hitting that system is being used in that system. There's no wasted energy. Those systems kind of defy time in a, in a literal sense, in a relative, in the, in the sense that time is relative, they are stable and they're not changing because time is not effective. There's no entropy in that system to to rot the system.
0: Right Now
1: enter well, you're Euro-Americans or, or whomever and you plow or otherwise cut down trees and slash and burn this landscape, total chaos erupts. The system doesn't have, you know, most of our systems don't have answers to that. So what you end up with is is these very simplified systems. You end up with ragweed. You end up with uh, horseweed, basically any, any common name of plant that has weed at the end of it, establishes in these landscapes and they're emblematic of chaos and, and, and disorder and disarray. Those are the exact opposite of that, that rich functional dynamism that we actually see in systems. That's most of our landscape now. And so when you see a park or you go to even a lot of conservation areas or natural areas, um, they're usually somewhere on the lower end of that scale um, and and the thing is once once that bubble is popped that magical bubble that bubbles popped even you know the challenge for restoration and, and and regenerating landscapes is that those systems are actually born of deep time and so when you go into a you know a city park they may have restabilized or even a you know, just a degraded old woodland, the system, when it restabilizes, when the nitrogen levels go back down and the system restabilizes, it's starting over. It really is the the staples easy button. It's the reset button. It's Everything has to rebuild from there. And we live in a landscape that doesn't have that connectivity. So you're not getting colonization dynamics like you used to, so a lot of places just sit and stagnate because they really have nowhere to go, and that's where restoration uh, community you know comes in and says, like, okay, well, how do we how do we put, at least put we may not be able to put Humpty back together again, but we can put all the pieces of Humpty in proximity to each other and hope that they stitch together in some some form or fashion. So sure, the, we live in a landscape where there is that range, um, and I don't think most people realize they they see the wood lot or the, the old field next to their property or in their backyard, or even their own lawn as being some form of nature. There, are there, there may be a form of nature in the sense that a toupee is a form of hair, but it's not actual hair.
0: Sure. And, and uh, you know, to follow up on that, it's, it's not that, um, you know, lawns or, or backyards or whatever are inherently bad. But it's that they aren't um, reaching their maximum potential, right? Like they they are plants, and those plants produce oxygen or whatever, and it's great. But the, you know the capabilities of these um, locations are actually much larger than we give them credit for. And even small spaces, like let's say the ditch on the side of the road, um, those spaces um, they they their potential is vast compared to the metrics that they're actually meeting. Right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and and the limitation there really is, is the scale to which they can change. So, so in a, in a, one of the, one of the most unfortunate things of, of, of altering entire landscapes like we've done in North America and we we have less than one tenth of one percent of prairies left on the landscape. If you're if you want to be a prairie manager or you want to restore prairie, you can't just walk away and say, Okay, this old field's gonna become prairie because it's in eastern Kansas, western Missouri, and that's what it used to be. You're gonna it's gonna become something different. And and balancing between what that needs to become versus what it can become, um, the landscape is so so fragmented and so disturbed that there may not be a big blue stem plant for 5 miles it's not going to recolonize the entire landscape so as restorationists i think that's that's where we sort of take this this nurturing chaperoning role where we where we try to put back those matrix organisms and and hope over time they start to colonize but like you say road ditches backyards grandma's flower bed. These are amazing places and wonderful opportunities of varying s- scales and sizes. And, you know, different I mean, people even in urban areas can put out some native plants on, on their balcony, for crying out loud. The The potential there is, is, is quite large. Um, and as a, as, a, as a society, we don't really, we don't, we don't wholesale take advantage of that or, or get involved in it. Um, but as restoration communities or, or landscape uh, regeneration opportunities unfold, we, we, we try to put those systems back together.
0: So how does um, someone in our audience that is interested in this take um, C values or uh, native plants? And how do they go outside after they're done listening to this and, and look around and evaluate the quality and health of the immediate vicinity if they walk out and on into their backyard and they look at their yard and the couple trees they may have how do they look at that and evaluate the quality of it and then evaluate the next step or next series of potential steps that they could take to um you know changing it in the right direction
1: yeah it's it's easier than one would think i i think through I don't know if it's through ecology or whatever the, the mystique of ecology. I think a lot of people think, well, you've got to be a scientist to do these to do these sort of things. Um, but there's an innate awareness of what a functional system is. Calendars of of mountains and meadows and beautiful forests. Nobody has to explain to you why they are beautiful. But in the same the same token, there are not calendars of roadside ditches and entangled, nasty woods, because inherently there we understand structure and value as an animal, um, that, that a system that is ordered and structured and dynamic is by its very nature appealing to us as a species, because that means that is a functional, rich system upon which to live and to cooperate, whereas a tangled, nasty, beat up place is the opposite. And that's that's just a function of nature. It's a reality of nature. So we, we we inherently know what sort of is and isn't, and we mimic that with lawns, and we try to we try to create these landscapes that are look ordered and structured. They're mimicking what is a natural phenomenon, and that's why the aesthetic of, of those landscapes appeals to us. But in the meantime, our la- our yards are landscaped in these non-native, sort of crappy, ecologically functionless things. But in the wood lot next to us is just a tangled, scrangly mess. Um, The difference is we, and one reason I like C-values and an angle I like to take on C-values is the C-values, getting involved in C-values is getting involved with your own relationship with that system. So as you start to learn plants and what their C-values are, you begin to understand the language of these natural systems. The the C-values or an artificial number that we just kind of bring up, that we assign to these plants. But it's a real phenomenon, and and, and it's the alphabets of these natural systems. And as we start to understand, that's a three, that's a C three, that's a C five. Here's a C zero. Here's a C one. We start to understand what those those letters of that alphabet, what words they start to speak, and we start to they start to speak to us in our hearts and in our lives. And we start to realize, you know, a whole world opens up. And, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dynamic that has to be reciprocal. We have to understand it as we're becoming involved with a system that needs us to become involved. And the degree to which we understand it this way is the degree to which we will we make it better. So all of a sudden you say, oh, this woodlot next to me, it's full of bush honeysuckle. If I got rid of that bush honeysuckle, I'd get more of these grasses and things that are underneath. So all of a sudden you're engaged in the system. You start removing bush honeysuckle, and then other things start popping up, and you get engaged in, in the changes. And all of a sudden you are part of the system now, and that's the problem. The C value of this wood lot next to your house starts going up. It's going up proportional to the degree to which you start feeling and involving yourself in that landscape. It is a reciprocal dynamic, and so and it's easy to do. Back to the just the nuts and bolts of it with 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 phone apps and you know eye naturalists, things like that. you can really quickly identify plants. you get the name of what something is, or get really close. And then you know you can just google like ecological checklist the Missouri flora. and you can get the C values, the whole list for the state, and then you start matching up numbers. And then it really is just an average, that average of numbers. If you can go into a woodlot. you can go into a woodlot or any you know even a high quality place, whatever, a road ditch and create a list of species, you can take that list and average the C values. And that average C value will tell you how much work you've got ahead of you. So
0: this person, this theoretical person could go out into their backyard. They could take a picture, put it on the app, figure out what the five plants are in their backyard or even in their landscaping, right? And then they could actually go um, and figure out what the C value is for each and every plant they've got. And they could actually create that that uh that number that represents the quality of that specific space and then they could increase it by planting other plants and things like that right yeah
1: yeah and they would greatly enrich their own lives in the process they would start realizing they'd start seeing oh here is the language of life here's the expression of life that expresses itself in no other way than like it is in my backyard and in this wood lot next to my house or in this ditch in front of my house um life's not i mean life is not going to express its way express itself in the way it would there anywhere else and a lot of those places most of those places in, in today's landscape are beat up scar tissue i mean they're they're but they're healable right and so so becoming involved in that it's like i say we're like we're talking it's pretty easy to do 10 years ago You'd have to find a flora, you'd have to run through keys you'd probably be wrong more than you were right. but it's one of the beautiful magical things about modern technology, especially with with the algorithms that can do like plant ID and stuff, is you can get really accurate I mean as a, as a field botanist I should be I should not be promoting it because it can <laughs> replace me and, and you know there's you have a botanist in your pocket you can just take pictures and pretty soon you start realizing you don't even need the camera anymore. You need, you realize what things are and you, you, the enriching of your own life of, of just engaging with living systems that way is, is, is part of the process and part of the point. It was never the intention of C values, but it's ultimately it's turning out. That's what we're doing with C values.
0: So 10 years ago I was 16, I was in high school and I wasn't really the biggest like outdoors person at the time. I mean, I mean, sure, I I would go play at the park with friends or or, um, go hiking every once in a while, but nothing um, too crazy. And then 10 years later, you know, I can walk outside and virtually identify any of the plants, at least in my immediate yard and vicinity, because I've been out there so much and I've I've done it so much. And just that repetition, um, I've just learned these plants. But um, I think that just kind of goes to show like at first, things look the same. They all look the same, even though the flowers are different colors, they all look the same. And then you start to figure out that um, this flower and this flower, although they look the same, but are different colors, they're actually two completely different plants. And they might even hold two completely different C values, even though they are um, basically the same plant or their flower is the same shape, but they're different colors. And so by doing that and exploring at least starting in your immediate vicinity, start in your yard, start at your grandma's house. And then um, you're going to recognize that that plant, that's a seven at your grandma's house. You actually saw it on your way to work the other day. And you're going to make these connections that um, a lot of these plants are not just mythological creatures that we'd love to bring back. And some of them really aren't even that rare to find
1: yeah that's one of the wonderful things i think that just learning plants and then having a c value with them sort of sort of gives them a we we literally i mean c value is a is a qualitative measure that we that we've given a quantitative value but it's really just qualitative we're we're it, it's numbers the 0 to 10 but it might as well be it's more of a categorical data but but like you say before you know plants there's just a green haze and as you start learning plants the green haze starts starts coming out I, I tell folks you love the green haze and people love nature most people like going out and they see the green and we look forward to the greens of spring um as you start to, and you love that right as you start to learn what makes up that green you start realizing oh there's five oaks in these woods not just oak and that there are these aster species you start realizing that your love for that thing is composed of many other things to love and you start realizing there's lots of love to give and all of a sudden you're, you're surrounded by living things that you recognize that you love and, and nature becomes not a green haze, but a, but a dance of rich dynamic living systems all around you that you, you kick yourself for having been ignorant of beforehand. And like you say, you start engaging in systems or trying to improve landscapes near and around you. You start to realize, like you say, Oh, up the road, I saw this. I never noticed that before. That's really important. That's a really, you don't see that anywhere. That's a really cool plant. Oh no, Farmer Joe's getting ready to expand his field. He's gonna plow that up. Can we do something? Can we get some seeds? Can we can we at least try to preserve and protect this little piece? You start becoming engaged when you understand not just the rarity, but the significance of what remnant systems we have. Um, every year i drive by prairie remnants that, that have persisted have, have escaped human destruction up until this point and i see on a, there's, there's several every year i drive by and there was a prairie remnant in western like western missouri and i drive by one year and i'm gonna go i'm gonna i'm gonna go out of my way i'm gonna go with this extra mile down this road and, and just kind of get an eye on that prairie remnant. you pop in and it's it's gone and you just you know, you, you pull off the side of the road and you just stare off into space for a while. And you think, My God, it's not over. We aren't done destroying this place. Um, so we, we really need to be aware and it's and nobody's doing it. there's no evil genius wringing his hands looking for prairies to destroy. It's just people doing what we've been conditioned to do, what we culturally do, but we can't be those people anymore. That we're not we don't live in that world anymore. We, we have to start opening our eyes and dialing that back and starting to to re, you know, Sam and I, we were talking before we started about about inner cities and blighted areas becoming now resurgent communities and, and new economy, that, that the hollowed out middle of cities are becoming flourishing and, and vital again in and, and important places. You know, there's, there's negatives and positives to that, of course, but that's what we have to do with our with our living landscape is to is to go back to the places that we once that we have since that we destroyed and ignored and breathe life back into those systems.
0: And the interesting thing to keep in mind um, that I learned recently, it's like when you look at um, Europe and some of these uh, other countries across the the ocean, a lot of these places have been um, colonized by humans and, and industrialized for so long that almost all of their native, uh, ecosystems, if there ever were any are completely gone or, uh, they are not what they used to be. Like they're restored. They aren't what they were a thousand years ago, but they're maybe like a somewhat, um, l- glimpse at what they could have been. But in the United States, uh, we actually have a really cool opportunity because a lot of our land, although degraded or, or um, still colonized to some level, we still have probably some of the most wild space of any country in the world, right?
1: Yeah, we, I, th- I, th- I think so. Um, at least in the temperate world, there's, there's more, probably more proportionally tropical systems left. Right. But in the temperate world, for sure, and it's one of the reasons you know we have so many Eurasian species that are problematic in North America is, is because Europe has had such a long history of of rampant wholesale landscape alteration that the flora itself has has evolved to that level, but that but the but the, that evolution is not having any real depth or any complexity. But then, yeah, a lot of those species are problematic in north america in a landscape that doesn't have that history and doesn't have that doesn't have those tools in its toolbox it, it's often why a degraded landscape will often be overrun with an invasive species It's because that invasive species really has no competitors um, we don't have we don't have a native equivalent of bush honeysuckle we don't have a native equivalent of of japanese stillgrass, um, and so those things can run fairly rampant across our landscape. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We we more and more and, and, and kind of to that same point, what we do have are remnants. We have shining examples of what was that you don't have much of in, in Europe. So like in Missouri, we've got the natural areas system. Um, you can go on, on the internet and find natural areas in Missouri. Kansas has natural areas. Most states have nature preserves. And these are sort of these curated, you know, like a, like, a, like a museum specimen in situ in the landscape. They are examples of, of what living systems can actually be. And I, I spend a lot of time in those places. To me, they're like, they're, they're sacred ground or they're, they're hallowed ground. You can go and see for inspiration, especially if you're doing like restoration work, these should really be the benchmarks of the guides by which we do re-involve the landscape. But not to go up on too much of a tangent but also we live in a landscape that may not have the potential to recover in exactly that same way so balancing you know it's a, a it's you, you can never go home again right so we can we can take a a cornfield and turn it into a prairie-like thing i often refer to them as prairieoid. um but that that functionality, and, and we should—that's an important thing to do. But we also have to realize that that functional dynamic comes from a a place experiencing itself over periods of time. In the same way that if I move to a new city, I don't learn and don't feel at home or in place until I've engaged and had experiences with that with that system, and then eventually it starts to feel like home to me. Restoration—we we almost always have to go through that. That awkward phase of a system attuning itself to its own site. Um, so it's, I, it, it's a weird situation for me because I, I, more than anything, we have to protect and recognize these old remnants of functional dynism. So we know what things are and because they're great and they're wonderful. And they're inspirational. At the same time, we want to do restorations that emulate those. But we have to understand. That it's never going to be exactly that same system nor should we push it to try to be exactly that system we almost have to relive this experience um in a different way
0: but we almost just- have to change our expectations a little bit right like the expectation is not that my backyard is going to be the perfect prairie one day but that it will emulate something that offers the same eco ecological complexity that uh, or or may, that's the goal, right? That it would, that it would get yeah. as close to the emulation of a, of a true prairie. But it, it isn't because it isn't now. And to get it there, I'm going to have to actually intervene as a human being and do some things that the native world would never be able to do on its own. Like it's never going to be able to chop down and spray pest, pesticides and herbicides like we are going to do um, one, you know, to restore these places, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And, and, and also being, you know, I, I've seen you know, one of the biggest failings in, in restoration and such is somebody will pull up the old land survey notes or have a record of, okay, this, my 50 acres of woods here, this was a prairie a hundred years ago. Somebody get me a bulldozer because <laughs> I'm going to level this place and make it a prairie again. Because you're not, because the, the soil, prairies are a soil phenomenon, a deep soil phenomenon. If it's a woodland, that soil is gone. So a lot of times recognizing what you have and, and, and moving with the trajectory of what is there now, where it's going and helping that become richer is a better thing than, than having this concept of, oh, this used to be this, therefore it must be that again, which often actually destroys more than it actually helps that balance is, 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 a, it's part of that system. And, and back to like sea values and floristic quality assessment, that's, that's how we often use that. If you have a wood lot that has some sort of prairie remnants, the degree to which prairie potential is there is the degree to which there are still prairie propagules in that landscape. Um,
0: so, just- so you're basically kind of saying like, take the positive components to the, To what we already have like even though it's degraded or changed from what it may have originally been there are positives or or it's already going its own direction and so instead of erasing it and restarting we can actually just take the natural trajectory that it's already on and kind of shape it along that path
1: yeah yeah and and, and especially you know one thing we run into and it's a fascinating dynamic is those old ancient systems before Euro-Americans came in and slash and burned and plowed everything. Those old remnant systems, say prairies, prairies in in northern Missouri and prairies in the Ozarks and prairies east of Illinois, um, and, and and Indiana and so forth. Those prairies, when you look at like what the what the rainfall limitations are, you know, prairies are made because it's too dry for for. Or forest. Um, but when it becomes too wet for prairies, when it becomes wet again, because climate's always slightly changing over millennia, you know, you get prairies pushing east for a couple thousand years. Well, then the, the, the patterns change such that it starts becoming wetter. Those prairies aren't aren't exactly what would happen or what would be there. But because they are so ecologically functional, because they are so ecologically tight and so niche-full, trees can't get into them. Those prairies will resist for hundreds of years, will just be prairies, even though technically they aren't in a prairie landscape. And when you pop that bubble, they instantly become forests. We have land survey notes. Lewis and Clark, several places on the Missouri River between St. Louis and Kansas City, where they'd stopped and camped. Right on the river of the Missouri River, they would talk about it's prairie on both sides of the river. This is like you know, so 1814, by 1829, 1830, when the first land surveyors came through to those exact same spots, they were forests because in the in the interim people had come in overgrazed, plowed, yada yada yada, and instantly those landscapes, those bottomland rich soils, become woodland forest landscapes because um, they're held against those those, those those uh there's, there's a buffer in time there so so even a place that may have been prairie at one point in time if it's destroyed it may not be relevant to try to make it prairie again and it's one of the problems like like the flint hills of kansas we do work in the flint hills of kansas and there's a lot of the a lot of prairies and a lot of like wooded communities are going nuts and it's much more wooded in the flint hills than it was historically it was prairie but it's also wetter than it was historically, and the bubbles have all been popped. And so it's only natural you can fight the, the trees and you can fight the shrubs, and maybe in some situations you, you should, um, but in some situations, I think we have to realize that um, when when something is one thing and it's, it's ecologically held there, then you change it, it's not necessarily going to go back to that.
0: That wraps up the first half of my conversation with Justin. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions or want to reach out, we can be found at Living Lands Pod on Twitter or at Reber Land Renewal on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube.